Hello listener. Before today's show, I'd just like to say that we've got an interview with Martin Bauer on his time on the film, but because of technical issues, it could only be done via recording from a landline speaker pressed up against my voice recorder. And boy, does it sound like it. So apologies for that, but at least we have it. Also, this is our first recording since Bill Pearson's passing to feature his work, and we respectfully dedicate the show to him. R.I.P. Bill, your legacy will live on. Here they come! Hello and welcome to episode 141 of Effectively Speaking, the podcast that takes a look at some of the special effects sequences of film and television, be they classic, average or duff. I'm your host Eric Moore and today we have the second part of our look at Flash Gordon where I'm joined by Andrew Glazebrook to see how much the 1980 version follows both the original comics and the Buster Crab serial. When did you have your first flash then, Andrew? Uh, now, I can't remember whether... Was it an Audion or an ABC release, this film? I don't know. I don't know. I, I showed it, but that, that was when I was working for Granada Cinema, so yeah. it was on general release by the time I showed it. I get the feeling that I've seen it at the Audion. So, right. uh, yeah, I did see it on its release. I went with a friend of mine, and, I, and I've, I've done know. There's just something about sticking in my mind now that it was definitely the audience. Um, and I, th- I thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, you know, I really did like it. Uh, I'd obviously probably, like you, seen Starlog, Starburst, fantastic films mm. in advance and got to see the pictures of it. But, again, as we've mentioned numerous times on this show, you know, we were like sponges for anything sci-fi yes. back then so you know you yeah. really just wanted to see what was coming next because it seems after star wars that it, it just was coming sort of thick and fast wasn't it you know there was oh, everyone had jumped on that bandwagon hadn't yeah they? and yeah and it just seemed like every time like every month when you bought like one of those magazines there was something new you know where you're thinking wow you know this looks amazing um, see, see, I, 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 I didn't think that. I mean, yes, at that time, yes, Starburst, you had the humanoid in there, didn't you? You had Message mm-hmm. from Space, you had Shape of Things to Come, and there were all these images, and when the Flash Gordon images started coming out, oh, they've, they've remade Flash Gordon. I was saying, you know, last week with Ian, you know, um, and I'm sure you're the same, you know, the Buster Crab cereal was, is ingrained in our minds as part of our youth, you know, in the school holidays and everything, and I love the cereals, and when I started seeing the images of, you know, Sam Jones and Melody Anderson, it's like, well, I don't know, it doesn't look like Flash to me. I, yeah. I don't think I got particularly excited when I saw the images. I think I was more imi- uh, excited by the images of Richard Keel in the humanoid than Sam Jones as Flash. Yeah, uh, I mean, Flash Gordon was probably almost certainly still airing at that point as well on British TV, wasn't it, on BBC Two? Probably more so when the film came out. Uh, Mm. But, um, you know, um, the one thing I don't think the Starburst and that really kind of had any images of was the ships. Um, it, it tends to be kind of like Flash, Ming, the Hawkmen. Mm. 
things like that. I can't remember seeing many pictures of the special effects um, at the time, uh, what the spaceships looked like, which is what I was kind of <laughs> interested in. Hmm. And did you enjoy it? You say you enjoyed it and you loved yeah, it yeah. the first time yeah, you saw it. Yeah, I really enjoyed it at the time, you know. Um, no, no, I've got a strange relationship with Flash Gordon in that I, I didn't like it. I mean, yes, we used to watch any th sort of science fiction that came down the road and I did watch it, but, you know, we're in the, exactly the same time that The Empire Strikes Back comes out, you mm -hmm. know, and um, it was just, I, I didn't get it. I absolutely didn't get it. It was too lightweight. It was too silly. Um, yeah. I have grown to appreciate it far, far more all these years later. I can look back on it now and, and I can see it for what it is now. I understand it now and I can revel in the, you know, just the glorious colours and the, the costume designs and everything like that. But back then, no, 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 no. I, I, I want the Battle of Hoth if I'm watching a science fiction thing. I don't want to see Timothy Dalton on a spiky ledge, you know. It, it kind of sort of reminds me of a, like a really high budget version of Star Crash. You know what I mean? It's kind mm. of this this movie which um, had all of these elements, uh, but on a much bigger budget. But then now has become kind of a cult movie, um, like Star Crash has. You know, it's the, the, there was a certain audience for it at the time, and then people who found it years on. Um, and I, I really do think it has like, like gathered a bigger audience in its you know, recent years uh, than mm, it had at the yeah. time. And it, it it's interesting, isn't it? Because you see these sort of like uh, magazines again, what we've mentioned, and you see the critics. And I'm sure the, the people like Alan Jones and stuff like that who reviewed these movies at the time probably, you know, years later, probably do reassess the movies they've, mm. they've watched and, um, you know, certainly probably give them a new mark. And uh, I'm sure there's a lot of people who probably dislike Flash Gordon on its release who probably have grown to like it. Oh, I know. If we were doing this show back then, I wouldn't mm. give it a very high marking at all. I, yeah. I, I give it a totally different one. That's very interesting that you say Star Crash. Yes, I can see Stella Star mm. in Ming's courtroom like that, yeah. you know. It has got this European science fiction feel. It's almost Barbarella as well, you know. A lot of those costume designs you could see in Barbarella, couldn't you? Yeah, and I always say this to people about when they go on about, you know, uh, Jodorowsky's version of June, and I said it would have been probably a cross between Zardoz, Barbarella, and Flash Gordon. Mm. Um, you know, it would have been so, like, over the top in terms of its ideas, you know. Uh, it certainly wouldn't have been June. It would have been probably closer to Flash. Hmm. All right. Uh, well, let's talk about it, shall we? Clytus, I'm bored. What plaything can you offer me today? An obscure body in the SK system, Your Majesty. The inhabitants refer to it as the planet Earth. How peaceful it looks. Majesty. Will you destroy this uh, earth? Later. I like to play with things a while before annihilation. <laughs> you know, it starts off and, you know, it sets out straight away, doesn't it, how it's mm -hmm. going, because you have this very 
1930s version of the Earth. They've recreated yeah. the the Earth with no features, no clouds, and sparkly uh, stars behind it. Yeah, don't it's like you? the Universal logo, isn't it? Really, very so. much so. Yes, yeah, and yeah. and that sets out how it's going to be. Um, and like I say, when I watched it, uh, you know, back in the early 80s, I didn't get the humour. Now with because you have Clytus talking, and he says, because Ming says he's bored, doesn't he? Yeah, I'm bored. Yeah. What have you got for me? And Clytus says, I found a planet called Earth. And yeah. it, that, that, that's really funny now, but I didn't get it. I was too po-faced a science fiction fan, I think, back then, to yes, get, the, to get it, the humor. He says the inhabitants refer to it as Earth. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It's just named after dirt. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, Ming starts toying with it. He starts pressing all these buttons. And again, the humor. I mean, a lot of the humor is it's old Lorenzo Semple Jr., isn't it? Who yeah. who who wrote a lot of the uh, the Batman TV series. Um, but he starts toying with the planet Earth by you know pressing all these buttons. I like the fact that they they've only just found out you know that it's called Earth. But one of the buttons says earthquake. Yeah. You know, not earthquake, but earthquake. <laughs> and this is a question that came up. I think Chris on Star Wars in Character said, you know, if you're on another planet and the ground starts trembling, yeah. like on Mars, do you have a Mars, a Mars quake or do you have an earthquake? Yeah. Or on Hoth, is it a Hothquake? On a Hothquake. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So that's the first little bit we've got. We've got. Of course, it's such a colourful film, you know, and mm-hmm. and you know we see the storms in the sky and everything. Of course, that's paint in a water tank, isn't it? For yeah. the red clouds, it's just uh, paint and water mixing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, various different dyes, isn't it, in different consistencies of liquid. It's very trippy. It's very sixties, yeah. isn't it? Again, very Barbarella. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the first proper effect sequence we have is. Uh, Zarkov's greenhouse. Yeah. Okay. Um, now we're we're just going to pause here for a interview that we've got with Martin Bauer. Um, you were supposed to be in on this, but sadly, due to technical difficulties, it didn't happen. So uh, yeah, you've just listened to it. I, I yeah. do apologise yeah. again, Andrew. Uh, uh, Andrew, you, you were supposed to have been in it, but uh, if we go ahead now, and we're just going to have uh, Martin's little interview. Okay. Okay. I know you were a fan of Dan Dare when you were a lad. Uh, were you a fan of Flash Gordon when you were little? Um, no, not at all. Uh, believe it or not, I never actually heard of him. Uh, which um, isn't really the right thing to say, perhaps. But no, I, I, uh, I had no idea who he was, what he was, what he did, you know. Um, Flash Gordon, I had to buy... Um, um, sorry, Dan Dare, I had to buy the comic um, with my pocket money and I had to spend it on someone da- on TV21 and someone the Eagle mm-hmm. for Dan Dare. So I didn't really have any contact w- with Flash Gordon. All I knew about was what I learned on, on the film um, and got on to the, um, was taken on on the film uh, because um, the guy who was the special effects staff at the BBC that I'd worked with um, basically got Bill and I um, onto the film as supervising model makers. 
Um, the first thing that was really ri ridiculous, and it really, really was crazy. Um, the, the pay was incredibly good, um, far more than on Alien, and that was pretty, very good as well. Um, but uh, I, I, um, I. I decided that uh, I, I, need, I need to brush up on my Flash Gordon, as it were, and I, so I read the script, and it put me off even more, and I thought, oh my goodness, and then I saw that it had been written by Lorenzo Semple Jr., who'd written the Batman TV series, and I thought, oh no, oh dear, oh dear, I couldn't stand the script on that, you know? Anyway... Um, went on to it, and uh, we, we arrived on the morning that we were duly supposed to start, and this guy came up to us, and he said, well, who, who are you? And we said, well, we're, we're the model makers. He said, that, that can't be right, whether the model's made outside. And we sort of looked at each other and uh, said, you, you're having the models made outside? What do you mean outside? Well, they've been put out to tender. Right. Except that Bill and I are supervising model makers on the film. Um, anyway, um, the, guy, the guy said, well, his, na his name was Norman Dorm. He was the um, super, sort of supervisor of the uh, models and what have you. And he said, well... I can't let you do any modelling at the moment. He said, which um, union are you in? And Bill and I looked at each other and said, uh, we're not in any union. He said, you, you're joking. He said, no. He said, how long have you been working in the film industry to me? And I said, about six years. He said, oh, and you've not been in a union? And I told, I said, no. And he said, what? <laughs> well, anyway, we'll, we'll, we'll see how we go. Um, he said, because really you should be, be in that key, the, the union, to work on this film. So um, he, we said, well, what you can do is you can, you can build some benches. We need benches for here. So the carpenters started making models. And the uh, model model makers started making benches, <laughs> and Bill and I uh, and a couple of other guys ended up making these great long benches, which were really really long. And we had a big glass front on our workshop, which looked out across um, the main yard of uh, Shepperton Studios, and of course. Um, as you probably know, Queen were doing the music. Yeah. And we eventually, um, through Norman pulling these strings, um, we were told that we, um, he was going to get the uh, models that they'd made next door and we could take them on um, and finish them and be the model makers as we should have been. He said, I've sorted it all out. Don't worry about the unions. And we, so we started on the, uh, the, the Norman bought this um, modelling, and it was Ming's Lander. Mm -hmm. And this thing looked like a square block of wood with a bubble on the top. It was 
absolutely like the worst model I've ever seen. And I, I said, how long's, when do you need this by? And he said, well, he said we, were, we, we did need it for the right spy tomorrow, but obviously um, I'm not happy with the quality of it, and it's been made like a carpenter would make it. <laughs> and it, it was, it was, it was appalling. And, and, and he said, um, I don't know what he could do with it. And I said, when are you filming tomorrow? I said, uh, he said something like, oh, well, as soon as, soon as you could do it, we'll, we'll have to put it off for a week or so. I said, um, come back tomorrow, just after lunch. And he looked at me and he sort of looked really, really said, and he, he didn't have much of a sense of humor. He said, don't muck about on this. I said, no, come back after lunch tomorrow and um, we'll see what we can do. And the moment he walked out the door, I whipped out the gelatin, carved the hull, made the wings, did the wings in perspex, went over, uh, carved the canopy that was all clear, went over to the vac forming machine, vac formed it, cut it off, stuck it on, painted it, did it all in all the right colours, and got it ready. And it was ready about half an hour before the t before the um, after lunch the following day. Did you have to work? Did you have to work through the night on it, or, or did no, you stop no. and go home? Um, he ca he came in in the morning of the previous day, so I did it in a day and a bit, a long day, right? About twelve hours, and he came in, and of course, like me being me, I I put the models down that he, the other guy had bought, and I painted it, with, I sprayed it with red paint, just for a lark, and I put it down. You see. And he came in the door and he saw this red model <laughs> painted on the on the desk. And he said, where's the model? I said, oh, there you go. <laughs> and he went, oh, come on. He said, I thought you guys could make models. I said, well, actually, it's that, that's not your model. And I took it away like that. I'm, do, I'm actually moving my tele TV recorder as I'm doing it. And from behind a box, I lifted this box up. And it was Ming's Lander. He said, I, I can't tell you what he said. <laughs> um, but he said, King Hell. Uh, and he said, how, do, how many of you worked on that? I said, and Bill said, Martin did it. And he said, you built that in 12 hours. And I said, well, I worked on a series called Space 
and sure enough, and he came, and he came in with this other model, and uh, we, and I went back to normal speed, and I did say to him, well, I did do it really fast for you. He said, no, it's great, you know, I can't believe it, it's really nice. We showed, we showed the art department people, and they said it's just like the, like, like the drawing, and it was a drawing, like, from the comic. It's mm. a nice drawing of it, you know, like, like a Dan Dare strip, and it was Flash Gordon. Mm. And uh, that, that, that was really the beginning of uh, eight months' work on the film. Um, but a lot of work was put out to a, a firm... Not the same firm, not the carpenters next door who had, had working on lovely benches. Um, <laughs> but we did um, the landscape, we did a huge landscape model, um, and had and I got uh, sent out to do. Um, uh, um, I don't know if how many people are, uh, are familiar with Zarkov's greenhouse. But I had to make this greenhouse, and uh, one of the things that it had was it had a, a um, it had glass, but sort of misty glass in this and this tower right in the middle, and in the middle of the tower was the rocket, mm-hmm. which we also had to make. But the carpenters had actually, again, they'd actually was one of the ones that they'd started, and we were able to to add bits to it and actually get it looking reasonable and get it to split like it does in the film. It, it detaches. Um, and another guy put all the pyrotechnics in it. Um, and But then we, we did the model of the, the greenhouse and um, the tower. Um, we thought, well, what, what can we use for the glass? Um, and I, I said to Bill... Um, this is Bill Pearson, by the way. I'm talking mm, about yeah, sure. a guy who sadly passed away about a month ago, but for those who don't know. Um, anyway, uh, yeah, Bill and I were doing, it, doing all these different things, made basically together, and we actually formed a company after Flash Gordon, about house models. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, um, trying to do what... what what the next thing was? Um, well, you were saying about you know um, what no, what are you going to use for glass for the for, for the greenhouse? Yeah, what? the greenhouse wasn't a greenhouse; it was a sort of white house, really. Because um, we said, what, "What can we do for the windows? Because they've got a shutter mm. as this rocket goes through." And uh, I don't know who it, what it was who came up with it, but it wasn't me. But I was the one, um, one of the people who who was um, involved with somebody who said, how about Fox's Glacier Mints? And I said, what do you mean? He said, supposing we pour, because we can't use toffee glass. Normally, when somebody's hit over the head in a film, it's, it's a, a bottle made of toffee, mm. right? And it's green or it's blue, but it's not clear. And we want it misty. Now, there's only one thing we can think of, and that's Foxy's Glacier Mints. So we went out and bought hundreds of Foxy's Glacier Mints, melted them down, and then poured them onto a sheet of glass. Mm-hmm. And then we had to try and cut them on a bandsaw, a very, very fine bandsaw, and cut out these pieces and stick them into the frame. 
of all the, the frames of the windows on the greenhouse. And lo and behold, when they filmed it, once again, they shot it, they shot it um, with, with the side taken off so you could see the rocket actually firing. And then they cut to a shot looking from down on it from above, mm. and you saw it come up right past the camera. Really nice shot. But most of our hundreds of hours of putting it in these blooming Fox's <laughs> Glacier Mint um, glass weren't really seen. Mm. Uh, which seemed to be the way it was. Mm. Uh, but, uh, yeah, one of many, many things that we got involved in. Yeah. Also on the greenhouse, you had a problem with mushrooms, didn't you? Ah, uh, yes, and grass. Yes. Yes. Um, yeah, well, I actually got sent out for... Uh, where, where, where I live, there was a big, big um, garden uh, centre... Um, but it was very wild. It wasn't a nice plush thing that had a kit tea rooms and a what have you attached. This was this really rough one. And um, I said one of the things we need to do is we need to make a really realistic landscape around the greenhouse. And went and got a load of, would you believe, J. Arthur Bowers uh, compost. Attached to the name of the guy who does it, uh, no relation because I'm not an, I'm not a Bowers, I'm a Bower. But anyway, um, I went in my Chevrolet. Uh, I had a truck that I bought um, because uh, we were having to hide a lot of stuff around that was very big and very heavy. And I love American machines, uh, particularly cars. Anyway, beside the point. I went up the road to the green uh, to the to, to the garden centre. Went in, and I said, um, um, "I need a lot of miniature trees because um, we're doing a film down at Shepperton." He said, "Oh yeah, yeah." He said, "I'm used to you lot coming up," and he said, "Usually they want big trees." Uh, you know, he said, um, "Pick what you want," and they give me a hundred quid in cash. Mm-hmm. Um, which actually was a lot of money then, yeah. really. Although it was 1978, it was it was beginning of 1979, I think. And obviously, a hundred pounds was a lot more. Like probably thousand pound now. I don't know. It was 19. I have no idea. It was a lot. Anyway, it was quite a lot of money. And I picked out all these different trees, and I came back and we planted them in the pots, mm-hmm. and we drilled a hole in the. Um, wooden raised um, thing that the model was built on and we dropped the pots in and then we poured in our J. Arthur Bowers um, compost patted it all down and of course the thing was obviously these trees needed watering because it was really hot on the D stage where we were and we started to um, put all of the um,
I mean, mushrooms, I guess, they grow anywhere. But anyway, we didn't try to smoke them or eat them or anything. We we just had to get... Every, but we got to a stage where every morning we had to cut the grass with a pair of scissors. <laughs> this grass in a hot studio being watered were growing so quickly. Um, and one of, so one of our jobs was to cut the grass and pick the mushrooms. Blimey. You didn't think you'd be doing that when you started the job, did you? Certainly didn't. No. Um, you, you know the war ro- rocket Ajax in the film? Yeah. Um, was that something you and Bill built from scratch, or was that another case of they that they gave you like a, a basic form and then you had to detail it or finish yeah, it off? they gave us a basic form and we had to detail it. And it was very, very depressed by this, actually. Yeah, because it took away all our, you know, I mean, it was nothing like we'd have done it. Mm. Oh, I'm not going to name the company that made them, but I mean, I don't know. They, they just were not not of the quality that I, I would have thought we would have to do. Um, but, uh, you know, you, you make the best of uh, what you can. And one of the things I had to do was put the rivets all over this... Um, Ajax rocket mm. um, and at the end of the film um, Ming gets stabbed by mm-hmm. the point on the front of the rocket now now that you know the, the rocket that was Zarkov's rocket right mm. um, was actually drilled out and fitted onto the nose of Zarkov's rocket Mm-hmm. So that as it crashed through and it, it put on the foot, this is full size, this is, mm-hmm. and it comes through and on the nose you can see if you if you can freeze it and see it come like come through Ming, um, but the, as it's coming down towards it, then Sarkov's rocket stuck on the nose. Right. So there you go. Okay. Didn't you also? It, it was you who sculpted the uh, the the creature in the tree stump. Simon Merton, um, I, I think his dad, um, he, I've seen his name on a few, I think it was on a Bond film recently, his dad was in the film industry and be, being somewhat um, nepotistic, um, he got the job on the film, um, but he was okay, you know, and he came up with this drawing of this creature and uh, I said, what, 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 what's, what's this then? And you know, he said, oh, there's this tr- creature that goes in a tree stump. And he said, the art department want to see what it's going to look like. You're going to make a model of it. So um, the pictures that are available are actually the model sitting on my the, the bonnet of my Chevrolet because mm. it was flat and smooth. And um, I made a model of it and stuck it this was actual film's scale because it was it lived in this tree stump and it was like a scorpion it had a tail mm. with a sting and he had died a horrible death if he got stung by it anyway Peter Duncan of um, Blue Peter fame uh, was the actor who was chosen to put his hand in a tree stump and lo and behold he put his hand in the tree stump got stung and died 
but he didn't really get died because I saw him walking down the street later. <laughs> Right. Um, you said right at the beginning of this, you know, at Shepparton, you, you, you know, the workshops had the big windows. I think I remember once in an interview you were saying about you were frequently distracted by the uh, uh, yeah, 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 right. the ladies uh, not yeah, wearing much. Distracted by several things. One of them, um, yes, you're referring to the young ladies that made up Ming's a hurry. Mm. And yes, from the... Uh, where obviously where they were being fitted out with these wonderful gowns and things, um, they used to walk past us and wave to us, you know. And, uh, and uh, we had a guy there who I, I can't remember his name. And he used to walk up to the glass and lick it. <laughs> and I thought that was absolutely obscene. It's really horrible. Who do that? Honestly, you never know where it's been. Yeah, maybe he thought it was Fox's glassy mint. Oh, a glass. Oh, I never thought of that. <laughs> yeah, oh. Oh, well, I, I, if there's ever another time, which there won't be, um, I would have I would have thought, should have thought of that, shouldn't I? Yeah. i tell you who did used to come in. Of course, I, I, I'd miss them out completely. And that was Queen. Mm. We met them all. Right. And what a nice bunch they were, every one of them. Did, did they take Mercury, in... He was smashing. He, he was what I couldn't believe. Um, I mean, since since then, nobody knew who Queen were, which is how they got them so cheap. Right. Um, you know, um, and Freddie, Freddie had a very, very cultured voice, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, Brian May was the same height as Bill, so that was about six foot four. Um uh, Roger, what's, what's Roger's surname? Roger Deacon. John Deacon. Um, he was quite quiet. But, yeah, they, they were really interested, and they would come back and see how we were getting on. And that was actually one of the highlights of the film for us. Right. And afterwards, to say that we'd met him talk with Queen, you know, um, they may or may not hear it, but uh, they used to come into this workshop. We could see them, you know, coming towards us. Uh, sometimes they came in through the, the shop next door, but uh, yeah, they, they were great. And I actually think the music suits the film really well. Some people have knocked it a lot, but I, I thought it was great, especially you know, now it's being used for adverts for Flash uh, Floor Cleaner. Yes. <laughs> I mean, honestly, what a thing to do to the Queen, that's terrible. Yeah. But, I, I mean, what do you reckon on the final uh, film, mine? What, I, I, I take it, I, I, I'm getting from you that you're not a fan, really, of the finished product. Mm, not really. Right. But I, there was all sorts of, I mean, we, we did this aircraft crashing at the beginning and we never saw it. Mm. Um, and unfortunately, most of what we did, um, and we're credited on there as supervising model makers, as, along with Don Sargent and Chrissy Overs, we had a girl model maker on our crew who was great. And um, also one of the lads um, who was our driver, um, I can't remember his name now, but he married one of the girls that walked past the window. Oh, one of the harem girls. One of the harem girls. <laughs> he, he, he didn't always Right. And you would never imagine that this guy would marry a girl that looked like that. 
into the side door because every door is like an airlock on a, on a studio door mm-hmm. the theatre shooting and uh, we would go in and look watch the we watch the football match right you know this stupid football match and Mike Hodges who I didn't know of him then obviously I've seen his name since um, and Mike Hodges would be there you know and uh, when they weren't shooting you know we went up to, to um, Ming. And he st- he was one of these actors that stayed in in uh, in character. Right. And he wouldn't answer you. He would just look down at you and roll his <laughs> eyes, you know. And and he had his finger, his hands stuck into his sleeves. Right. I believe. Um, and uh, you know, it, it it was just kind of fun. It was worth it for the money. I mean, they paid us wonderfully. Mm-hmm. Sure. It, it sounds to me like you you had more fun making it and watching it be made than actually watching the final product. You mean with Flash? Yeah, yes, very much, yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, thanks for your time today, Martin. That's very nice of you to take your time out to, uh, to uh, have a little natter today. That's all right. Yeah. Any time you like. All right, tomorrow, tomorrow normal time then. <laughs> Right, so, um, Zarkov's greenhouse, we mm. get it in a long shot, don't we? And it looks really yeah. good. Um, we yeah. got it during this hot hailstorm. Um, now, Martin, of course, um, along with Bill Pearson, made the greenhouse. Yeah. Um, what do you think of it, uh, its representation when you see it on screen? It's... Uh... It's one of those miniatures where it's it's a it's a really nice miniature, but there's uh, problems with the depth of field. You've got foliage in the foreground, which is you know massively out of focus in some of these shots. So that mm. obviously makes it look more miniature. But it's a, you know it's a really really nice miniature. I mean, I'm not too sure why he is living in a greenhouse in the middle of nowhere. There's no explanation for this. It's uh, he seems like he's got this laboratory that's uh, you know partly a giant greenhouse for some reason. The only um, theory I've got for that, I mean, in the comic, it is, a, you know, like, um, oh, what's the what's the telescope in California that's in all the films? Um, oh, yeah, the, uh, in, the one in, that's in the Rocketeer and... And Terminator and all like that. It looks just like that. Yeah. You know, you've got the dome with the telescope pointing out of it, yeah. and uh, that's how it is in the comics. Um, yeah. But I'm thinking Griff, maybe... Griffin Observatory. That's it? it, Griffin yeah. Park. Yes, yeah, good Griffin old Griffin Park. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm thinking it's a greenhouse. I think this is a deliberate design nod to mm. um, First Men in the Moon. All right, yeah. You know, yeah. because you had the you had the greenhouse there where you know uh, the the sphere was constructed and it smashed out of it on its way up into space. You yeah, know? yeah. So I think that's a bit of a too much of a coincidence. I think that's a complete nod to mm. First Men in the Moon. Um, yeah, I mean, in long, in long shot, it looks all right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's when the, the plane crash lands. Um, what do you think about... I, I, I've, I've read it many, many times, you know, Martin saying about the, the whole mushrooms growing thing. Um, yeah, I, I, I think that's quite funny that they've saved money and they've got cheap dirt you know, yeah, it, that's it's, impregnated uh... with mushrooms. It's funny because when you hear that story, there was a very similar story on the original King Kong. 
Um, I believe on the original King Kong, Willis O'Brien was doing um, a stop motion sequence and they were using real dirt. And what he didn't realize was happening was a, there was a flower, there was a bud, <laughs> and it actually sprouted. So I think when they watched the footage back later on in the day, somebody sort of pretty much pointed out, hey, look at the magic flower. And I think that's when they sort of almost realised that time-lapse was possible with nature. Mm. Uh, you know, because he hadn't realised that this flower was actually growing under the hot lights um, while he was animating. Uh, so that kind of, the, the the mushroom story sort of reminds me of that in a little bit of a way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, here we've got Zarkov in his greenhouse. He's got a rocket. It's a nice, you know, full-size representation yeah. of what, you know, Bill and and Martin built in in the serial it's just one of you know the traditional flash gordon rockets in the woods and in the comic it's a vertical rec, uh, rocket right yeah. outside his uh uh telescope okay which which, um, which which came first the miniature or the full size who who did what it's got re- to be the miniature I, I i'm sure it must be the miniature and then they that they were given that and using that as a template to build i'm sh- i'm sure of it yeah, because it, it, in that case, then it's quite weird, isn't it? Because if you think about the nose cone of the miniature, it's almost like the rest of the rocket must be literally buried under the ground in like a mm. silo. Yeah. Because they, they they get they do go up a few steps to get into the rocket, but the rest of the rocket's actually quite long when it takes off. So yeah, it's almost like he's got like a silo below. Yeah, but you've said before that you know um, many model makers have their own you know style aesthetic, mm-hmm. and Martin Bauer is one of them. And that yeah. that the front of that rocket screams Martin Bauer to me. Those those inlaid parts that go all the way round it. That is a very Martin Bauer style of design, isn't it? So yeah. I think the miniature came first, and then they right. made the full size. I think. The big question, right? I don't know if anyone's ever answered this. Does Munson actually die when the plane crashes into the greenhouse? Because he just seems to disappear. You never see him again, do you? No, he sort of runs back in and the plane comes through and then he just, he doesn't seem to get squished by it, but then he doesn't, he's not there. So it was always a bit mysterious. I'll have to check the novel. I do have the paperback somewhere. I'll have to see what the paperback says happens. Of course, in the comic books... He's not there. Yeah. That's Porkins, isn't it, from Star Wars, you know, yeah, uh, yeah. And, and also Raiders of the Lost Star. William Hookins, yeah. Uh, William Hookins, that's it, yeah. Um, no, I mean, Zarkov in, in the comics, he, he's working alone. He, he's come yeah. up with this idea of launch a rocket to smash into this approaching planet and deflect its orbit, you yeah. know? Because mm. on <laughs> the other part of this argument I've had with a friend about this is even if he doesn't die with the plane crash, he'll certainly be incinerated when the rocket takes off. Because, yeah, <laughs> I, I think that's a very nice touch. The, the greenhouse glows red, doesn't it, yeah, just before yeah. it's, it smashes and smashes through. So, yes, he would have been burnt to a crisp, yeah. even if he had survived <laughs> it. Yeah, and there's no throwaway line or anything like that from Zarkov. No, no, it's... it's uh... I'll have to, yes, I'll check the paperback and sort of find out what goes on in there. Yeah. Martin was saying in that interview, you know, that they went to a great deal of trouble perfecting, you know, clear glass yeah. that could shatter safely. And yet, he's right, isn't it? It's, it's an aerial shot looking down on the rocket. So you don't see too much of the, you know, smashing of the glass no. as it takes off. No, you don't. It is a very weird angle, isn't it? It's almost like literally looking right down on the model. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Which. Dramatically, that doesn't make an awful lot of 
impact, really, does it? No, you you think there'd be more ground level looking up, you know? Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. At least for one of the shots. Yeah, so they take off and they yeah. go towards this wormhole or black hole or whatever that is because it's meant to be an approaching planet, but they go through a something. Vortex. A, a yeah. vortex, that's a good word, a vortex. He, well, I think he calls it the Imperial Vortex or something, I think. the uh, One of the people with the goggles on. Yes, yeah. yeah. So, so, but just before they go in, they go for, through past far too many planets. There's planets everywhere as they're traveling through space. It's very Blake Seven. Blake yeah. Seven in the first couple of seasons, they had far too many planets that could mm. possibly be near each other. Yeah. Um, I, I, there's an unfortunate process thing. Do you know what that term is where you've got the, the block that's a different cover, shade of The cover black? mass cover mat that's the yeah. phrase yeah 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 and it does it, it it follows the ship along doesn't it it's i think what it is is when they were doing the blue screen elements uh, it's a case of the you, you only need the blue screen around a certain part of the model so they do like have a what's called a garbage mat anywhere where they can just sort of quickly sort of block areas out um, mm. but then yeah it's something that doesn't obviously show up in a 35mm print at the cinema, but just inherently showed up on VHS and DVD. Right. Uh, because of the contrast difference. I think it's something to do with the blacks. You know, the blacks in the cinema are far more purer. Uh, so, yeah. you know, I don't... Anybody who ever remembers seeing garbage mats in Star Wars or Empire or Flash Gordon at the cinema, but as soon as they came out on VHS, yes. it was like, there they are. I've read this about, you know, George Powell's War of the Worlds. Everybody who's got it on Blu-ray says, oh, you can see all the wires. But yeah. I've seen a, an explanation for that in that the way that you're seeing it is different to how it would have been projected back in the 50s. And, and more than likely, you wouldn't have seen the wires so much. Yeah, and in the 1950s, they'd have been still using carbon arcs and the, the, yes. the light would have been probably darker as well. Yep. So there's a, there's a lot of elements that, yeah, you know, certainly. But also, uh, you, you, you as an ex-projectionist, you know that, you, you know, the film that you're showing is only good, as good as the projector you've got, is only good as the lenses that you've yeah, got yeah, on definitely. your projector or the quality of the print. So yeah. these things, are, and also, you know, 81, when this came out, I mean, that, that, that's, I, I was working in the cinema, you still had smoking in cinemas, so you had this yeah. smoky haze <laughs> yeah, yeah. to add as a filtering device as well. You weren't seeing the image in as much detail as we see them now. Mm. Yeah, the, um, I think David Lynch was talking about this recently, saying about, you know, he's a big advocate for digital projection because he says, you know, it is kind of... A, it's a standardized system. You know, you should be seeing exactly the same all the time. Um, there should be never like a, a, a dip in quality in terms of the brightness of the lamp ah. or, or, the, or the fact that we're actually getting a print which is getting gradually dustier or oilier, yeah. you know, over the weeks. He says yep. that, you know. No, but the operative word there is should, and that would apply if you still have projectors projectionists in projection boxes you know tweaking the lamp turning the current up yeah, refocusing yeah. it etc etc you haven't now so you know no. that's that's fine as as long as you've got someone doing that yeah um next up we've got john hollis good old john john hollis doing his forlorn bit yeah with his uh, natty goggles um and then we go straight into a large mongo planet scape um obviously a tabletop miniature um which leads up to Ming's Palace, doesn't it? I, th I think you meant John Hollis doing his lowbot. 
Oh, fall on. Why did I say fall on? Yeah, Lobot. Sorry about that. Yeah. <laughs> you, you had me confused there. I'm thinking, it's late in the day. It's I'm late thinking in the it day. sounds right, but I, I knew there was something wrong with it. No, fall on's a robot. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. 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 yeah so, yeah, we've got this tabletop miniature, haven't we? Uh, yeah. Of Mongo going up to Ming's palace mm. um, and the ship lands. I, as I say, it's a very faithful recreation of, of the miniature work that we've seen yeah. of uh, Zarkov's spaceship. I don't know why Zarkov has gone to all the trouble of painting it in the colours that he has. It seems an unnecessary indulgence, isn't it, to paint a ship? Yeah, you think it'd just be metallic or white? Or... Yeah, NASA never painted their ship. No. Well, they painted the Saturn Fives all black and white, weren't they? But yeah, you've never nice... seen them in green and orange. There were some nice shots before it crashes, like when they bring it through what's called a sea of fire, and then there's like mm-hmm. other vortex things. And again, uh, these are really kind of like inks and stuff dripped in. Uh, in water, liquids. you can. Yeah, they're very much like the end of two thousand and one. Some of those uh, shots, you know, yeah, it's all the... very trippy, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so we get all of them before we see the shot of it actually coming down to crash. But I mean, this, it's obviously this, this... on wires, isn't it? The model as it comes into crash, that's on wires. Yeah, it's. It seems like the... was this the sort of point where the graveyard of ships would have been? Which... I think so. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I get... I get the feeling I... it kind of flew over those first. Maybe it's like other ships that have tried to land because. They do say about bring it through, don't they, at one point? He says, yes. like, bring it through, land it, he says. Yeah. I mean, I, I said to you before we started, you know, um, yeah, my, my my interview with Martin was a real on-the-spur-of-the-moment thing, and if, right. if I'd had more time, I would have asked him about the spaceship graveyard thing, because looking at the stills of it, it does seem that looks very Bill Pearson and Martin Bauer, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. And again, those the stuff in the graveyard for anybody who's never seen the pictures, it's kind of like almost like the um, the skeletal remains of ships, isn't it? You know, like yeah. like the it's like the cylindrical carcasses of ships, like skeletal, like there's just the the ribs almost of most of mm. them with like some panels on. But uh, yeah, it's it. You think is it meant to be like from a battlefield or are the ships that have tried to land previously that just crashed? I would have thought if they weren't skeletal, if they were, you know, proper forms, I would have thought maybe that's the use that they got out of these carpenters' spaceships, you know, because Martin was saying about when they came on board, yeah. they had carpenters making the spaceships, yeah. um, and Martin and Bill were making benches. Uh, workbenches. <laughs> so it could be that's that's the future that they had, is they yeah. populate this, this missing scene, you know? Yeah, yeah. Hmm. So, yeah, I mean, they land. We have this good re- life-size recreation of the ship, and we've mm. got the guards come along. Yeah. Uh, now, I like that. I like the Skeletor-style guard. Yeah, with uh, the mask, with the, like the skull yeah. mask. It's like a half-skull, isn't it, almost? Yes, yeah. I'm not too keen on the red gas mask version ones, though. It's just no. something that, that they look a bit, a bit lazy compared to what we see with everything else. They look like they're related to the Imperial Spy from Star Wars a little bit. They do a bit, don't they? Yeah. Yes, yeah. Um, so yeah, we've got Ming's courtroom, haven't we? We've got, we've got this big palace, and yeah. um, I mean, this is very much how it is in the comic books. You have because it's a comic book, and Alex Raymond is given full reign. He could populate these vast, expansive rooms. You know, with all these, you know, weird and wonderful costumes and aliens. I mean, it's something in '36 they couldn't have done, you know, on the Buster mm. Crab one, um, and that's why they reused so many, you know, uh, set dressings from other Universal yeah. things. But 
Here it looks fabulous. I mean, the costumes are fantastic. That massive black and gold Ming's head that's off to one side, that must have cost a fortune to make. I think there's more than one as well. I think there's two of them. I'm sure they're like, there's, there's symmetry to the set, so I think there is more than one. Yeah. Um, but it's, I think it's another one of them situations that even though it's a really sort of busy scene, I still think from what I've seen in various documentaries, there's far more stuff that was made and not really gets much screen time. Mm. Um, you know, I've certainly seen pictures of other things where you're thinking, oh, I wonder where that was. And, you know, I think it was a very busy scene and they just... I mean, it works for it because um, it seems like there's lots of different races there, but I think some of them were probably wasted. Yeah. I'm looking forward to this book that they keep putting back, don't they? they it was meant to have been out this month. Now it's meant to be out next month. You, oh, you know, the, uh, the one by book, John Walsh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And that would be brilliant research material for an Effectively Speaking. And, and who knows, maybe once that's out, because I know you're going to buy it, yeah. and I know I'm going to buy it, maybe we'll come back and we'll do a follow-up to this. Um, yeah. Maybe it's got you know more info about just what was filmed and cut out because you see some of those costumes are so colourful and so elaborate and it's mm -hmm. like what and these were made just to be in the background were they you know yeah, you do get a I'm, feeling there was other scenes missing. I mean, whoever was at the studios during this point in terms of you know a unit photographer um, must have took hundreds of photographs of these costumes. You know, uh, mm. j just as people are putting them on and they must have had them uh, as reference and things like that. So the, the, there must be pictures all over the place that have just never seen the light of day. And hopefully John, in his book, has got things that's never been seen before. Mm. Because there's nothing worse than waiting for a book like this and then just finding out you've seen all the pictures Yes. Dozens well, of I don't times. know. I mean, looking on Amazon, you know, where you can see a few images from yeah. the book. It does. Uh, there are certainly photos in there of the costumes I've never seen before. Oh yeah, so. that, that's it. That's what you want. That's it. You know, um, they, these photographers. I mean, uh, I know obviously these days it's different because digitally you can just sort of pretty much stand and take as many pictures as you want. You're not wasting film. Mm. But I'm sure these unit photographers. Um, I mean, I know there was a, a guy called Bob Penn who worked on Alien and Aliens. Um, as unit photographer, and you know, it was just his job essentially to walk around all day and just take pictures. Yes, yeah. Um, so I mean, you know, I don't know where they end up archiving these things, but uh, you know, he's probably got all sorts of. I mean, I've I've sometimes see, uh, you see them in auction where there's like almost like uh, a strip of be uh, publicity images, whether it's mm. like from the Batman film or whether it's from you know a, a Planet of the Apes film, where it's like maybe he's Nova stood in front of a a, a blank canvas. And there's just dozens of photographs of her from slightly different angles. Mm. And there's crosses on them. You know, they're the ones, obviously, which, well, no, they're no good. And there's ticks yeah. on others to say, well, these are the ones we'll send the publicity department. Um, and I see, you know, this is, I've seen these up for auction on various auction sites where, you know, they've, they've come from, like, some archives. So there must be ones for Flash Gordon like that for, for Ming. You know, when, when he first put the costume on, they must have took a lot of photographs of him. There must have been different versions that they tried and yeah. went through, and then they came up with the one we see. Because this is where we see Ming for the first time, isn't it? When he's coming up those steps. Yeah, yeah. And Clytus as well. We see we, we, we meet the brilliant Clytus at the same mm. time, who is an invention for this film. There is no Clytus in, yeah, in yeah. the comic strips. Um, apparently, Mike Hodges still has Clytus's mask at home right. on yeah. a shelf. Yes. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, we've got all these different races there mm. um we've got voltan 
um, squaring up against um, Baron. Baron, Prince Baron. Now, Prince Baron in this version is nothing like the Prince Baron we see in the Buster Crab serials, no. apart from the name Prince Baron. But we were saying last week, it is incredible when you watch the Buster Crab serials, how much the Haw- the the Voltan, the King of the Hawkmen, is yeah. Brian Blessed. Mm. It's it, it's staggering. He is a prototype Brian Blessed. Yeah, and in Blessed says, doesn't he, in lots of interviews that even when he was a kid in the play Flash Gordon mm. playground, he wanted to be. Voltan. He wanted to be Voltan, and I have seen. Um, people say that it was Voltan that started this, you know, public persona of Brian Blessed, this, mm. you know, bombastic, you know, very outgoing, larger-than-life character. Yeah. And it was created here. And I do wonder if when he was, you know, because he pitched for the role of Voltan, yeah. um, if he watched that guy, and that guy clearly is, a, as I say, an ancestor, distant ancestor yeah. of Brian Blessed. Oh, I'm, um, sure, I'm sure he did, almost I'm certainly. sure he, yeah, and, yeah. and he, he took it up to 11 for yeah. this film, and from then on... And stayed there, he, <laughs> yeah. And he's stayed there ever since. Yeah, it's, and, it's and, got and, stuck and, at 11. And God bless him for it, you know. Um, <laughs> I think this is ground zero for the Brian Blessed that we know and love. yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's it's like someone put some super glue on the uh, on the dial and it just got stuck at eleven. It's never been reduced since. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, last week we were talking about you know one of Flash's allies is Prince Thun, yeah. who is the um, you know the, king of the, the, uh, of lion, the lion Men. men. Yeah. And he's here. He's called Prince Thun in this, and it's all uh, Captain Katanga from um, Raiders of the Lost Ark. You That's know, right, the, yeah. George, George, some, George Harris. George Harris or Harrison, yeah. Harris Harrison, with, yes. With, with the voice. Yes, absolutely yeah, it, the it's voice. Not, yeah. It's not his original voice. Although I think somebody said if you watch one of the trailers or listen to one of the... Oh, you get the original Queen, then. One of the Queen tracks, you hear his original voice in the track. Right. Yeah, um, it, it might be a trailer. It might be the Queen soundtrack. But yeah, they said... The, the the voice is there in the original thing, you know. You hear ah, him speak right. in his own voice. I don't know why the the, the dubbed it. I don't know. Was... Well, yeah, dubbing is a bit of a problem with this film, as yeah, we'll, yeah. we'll find out. Yeah, no, but he's killed almost immediately, isn't he? Yeah, um, yeah. Stabbed by Ming, and we see that he's got blue blood. What world? <laughs> what world is he from again? Um, I can't remember. It. That, it's that, not. It's not Frig- it is. Is it, it Frig? No, it's not Phrygia, is it? No, it's no. not Phrygia. See, in the, in the comics, they're just other areas of Mongo. They're not from other planets. They're just other regions of Mongo. Yeah, well, that's a little bit sort of hazy in the film, isn't it? Because the the world where the, where Baron comes from just seems to be this floating rock, almost like is that meant mm. to be just orbiting Mongo? Um, it doesn't seem like they are. Um, unless they're the worlds that they pass on the way, you know, that we kind of see, but... I do get the feeling more it is like realms on, on the yes. planet. Yes, yeah. Um, the thing I don't like, the one thing, I, I it's like, no, no, no. And I thought it then, and I think it now, because it looks terrible, is you've got these rubbish snake people who have got their faces in their open mouths. You know, they're, they're, they're yeah. like yeah. walking cobras, but the face yeah. is bright red, isn't it? And yeah. looking out of the mouth, and it's yeah, like, it- no, that's crap. It's like somebody wearing like a mask, looking out of the the mouth, isn't it? Really? Because that's exactly what they're doing. 
Yeah. I don't, oh no, no, it's that's just a bit too silly. I'm not um, too sure who did that side of the work. Um, I've never really seen any anybody connected with the the makeup side. We got to wait for the book, I think. Mm, yeah, yeah. No, it was a bit naff. That it was naff. Yeah. So Flash is freed by Arlen or Arlo and taken away in Ming Shuttle, which we yeah. think is the one that Martin said isn't in it. Um, right. T- to Aborea, and I like Aborea because it's a mixture of sets and matte paintings, isn't it? Yeah. Um, done very well. And that establishing shot is far bigger than what we saw Endor be. Mm. And the sets are much, much busier than what we yeah. will see Endor to be. Yeah. I know it. it's on one of the documentaries where he says... Um, I can't remember whether it was the designer said something about the originally wanted like a road running through them. Yes, no, I've got they, that in behind the scenes. I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll come to that when we reach behind the it scenes. Doesn't yeah. seem like the type of place would have a road. Yeah, it's Dino. It was old Dino yeah. who wanted roads. Yeah, and um, yeah, so we've got we find out all about Prince Baron and his people, and you know Aboria and everything, and we have Peter Duncan and the thing in the tree stump, don't we? Yeah, but which the, everybody the, the, remembers. The Peter name Duncan. Baron as well. I think it's Clytus who at one point calls him Barin, which is kind of Barin. how it's, it's spelled. He says, That's how it's spelled, yes. Yeah, because, uh, you know, you think Baron, like Baron Harkonnen, but it's not. It's Barin. Mm. And I'm sure he, um, somebody calls him it at that point. I think uh, Flash in the serials calls him Barin. I don't yeah. think he calls him Baron. I think he does call uh, him Barin. No, I'll tell you where it is. Um, it's... It's towards the end of the sequence when um, he's about to kill Flash after he's been in the thing in the ground. And he mm-hmm. gets the gunshot of his hand. And I think he says, uh, Volton wants to see you, Barin. He call, and, and right. It's one of the Hawkmen calls him it. Yeah, he calls him Barin. Barin. Yeah. Right, right. Okay. All right. Well, now, so we've got this thing in the tree stump. Yeah. Which is a very memorable moment. And, you know, I guess if you are like six... Mm. Or seven. That is, you know, a terrifying thing. You yeah. Know? Um, but I was in my late teens, so I didn't find it too terrifying. Now, Martin, you know, I've seen sculptures that, you know, with Martin, like he says, he's got it on the bonnet of his car. Yeah. You know, yeah. That, that Martin sculpted it. But he says that it was based on a design by somebody called Simon Morton. Right. Okay. Uh, father was in the industry, and yes, yeah, I, I I looked it up. His father and grand grandfather they were like uh, production people in film, but it, right. it looks like Simon Morton designed it. Martin built it, but there's a big question mark, and I've only found this out after I did that talk with Martin, in that Andrew Ainsworth, you know, who was the man who sculpted mm. and built the very first, you know, Star Wars stormtrooper costumes on his uh uh, website he claims to have made the bug right because it's a it's a very weird thing isn't it because it seems an awful lot of work for something that you only kind of see a fraction of i mean you're Mm. only seeing like literally the back and the tail um it's not like we ever see it walking around um you know, were the legs articulated, or were they, was it just like a static sculpture? It's a bit. I, th- I think it was like a bit like a puppet or a marionette. Yeah. I think it was operated from from underneath. You know. Yeah, but uh, yeah, I've, I've never really sort of. I just assume Martin had made it, um, and that it just never kind of got fully 
reused, really. But yeah, uh, I've, I've got magazines somewhere. I'll have to dig them out. You know where Martin is talking about making it. So yeah, I don't know where where Andrew Ainsworth comes in for it. Maybe he puppeteered it or something. I don't know. Um, mm. But on his website, when you go onto his his website, he talks about you know his time on Flash Gordon, and Andrew says that. He made the uh, a number of spaceships, including that one that that's got like a fly's face. You know, it's got the bug eyes and the yeah, and the yeah. stinger on the front. Yeah. And I'm wondering if that's what Martin's talking about, where he says other people made the ships and then we detailed them. You know, so yeah. maybe Andrew started it, and you know, Martin and Bill finished it off. But also, Andrew says he made the uh, all the wings and the feathers for, you know, all the Hawkmen's armour yeah. and stuff like this, you know? Because this is a similar story to what Martin and Bill did with Outland, you know, in terms of mm. the, the shuttle. It seems like the shuttle was provided to them already as a box with certain bits built. Um, and then they went in and sort of dressed it, detailed it and painted it. Um, and I have seen, you know, various sort of counter arguments as to who actually did what with that, you know, and I think mm. this is probably a similar thing as to, you know, the, the, well, it's the same as the Liberator, isn't it? Again, Martin was provided with a basic shape. And, yeah, detail it and make, and bring it up to spec, yeah. Um, you know, not not that obviously Martin or Bill couldn't have built everything from scratch because they certainly could have done, but I suppose this is just the way the production was working. Yeah, sure. Um, that they were just given stuff. And, I don't know if you've seen the documentary on the DVD, but it shows you Martin and Bill actually detailing War Rocket Ajax. Mm. Uh, there's a there's a clip of looks like Martin like putting the the rivets in or whatever. Yes. I don't know whether they're glued on or whether they're hammered in or what. But um, it looks like a, a very laborious job. Yes, I wouldn't want to do it. Anyway, um, yeah, Zarkov and Dow escape on a jet bike, one of these jet yeah. bike things. That's not too convincing. Um, and then we get the Hawkmen. And, uh, yeah, they're deeply unconvincing flapping wings. Yeah. You, the jet you, bike seems to be one of the few designs by Chris Foss that actually made it into the movie. What do you think of them? Because I always think of them as just being reg regular, you know, water ski bikes. Yeah, I mean, they are. I mean, if you, Chris Foss has obviously done other designs for them where they were more like sitting down in them and stuff. And they were very... Typical Foss in terms of his stripes and his, um, you know, weird shapes sticking yeah. out as various fins and stuff. But this seems more like a, a, a scale back version. I mean, I don't mind them. They, they, they do seem a bit weird. Um, but then I suppose, like, in a way, they look a little bit like the things that were in the Phantom Menace that the yeah, true. droids go around and they were yeah. stood up and yeah, yeah, yeah. using, like, handlebars. Yeah. But also we get the Hawkmen approach mm. with their, as I say, they're not convincing in the slightest that their wings are actually being used to keep them in the air. Yeah, yeah. Because they're very lazily flapping, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're not hummingbird-like, are they? Yeah, there's a lot of problems as well with the the opticals in this movie, isn't it? Mainly on these sequences. Hmm. I think maybe they looked all right on set, but yeah, yeah, you're right. It is the processing, it is the compositing, and everything, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, and as I say, I mean, when this film came out, I wasn't a fan of it, and you know, a lot of it passed me by, and including the humour and the whole, you know, bring on the boar worms. Yeah. You know, when she's being, you know, inter interrogated 
that passed me by. Now I, th- I think it's really, really funny, you know. It's quite dark, isn't it? I mean, you know, considering this was like a film that came after Star Wars, there is some stuff in here which is like quite dark in terms of its subject matter and its, um, you know, even the humour. It's, it's a bit weird. It's, it is kind of almost Barbarella. Yeah. See, I get that now because I'm older. Yeah. But then, when I was I was 19 when this came out, and you know, I was all all desperately into you know Star Wars and everything. So I didn't get any of it. But I do mm. wonder what you know, you know, if you t- if you're taking your eight year old to yeah. um, to see you know Flash Gordon because you remember Flash Gordon when you were eight during the summer holidays. What you would have made by her being whipped while her father watches. <laughs> yeah, while he's drinking his glass of wine or whatever. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Father it, and all this, it, you know. Eating a snack. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Dear, oh dear. Um, so we have the Hawkman's city, don't we? Yeah. Um, yeah. Cloud I, City, yes, of course. Cla- well. It's basically Cloud City. I mean, it was realised very well in the Buster Crab version. They, that they, shot for shot, recreated what mm. Alex Raymond had done. You don't see an awful lot of it um, exterior-wise in this film because the main focus seems to be this spiky platform where there's going to be a fight. Yeah, I think uh, there's just there's the one or two establishing shots just as we first see it and then everything else is its destruction mm. after the spike sequence, isn't it, really? Yeah, we, we, which is made up for this film. This doesn't happen you know, in the yeah. serials or or the Buster Crab things. There is, in the comics, there is a fight between Baron and uh, Flash, but that's in Ming's city, and it's a proper, you know, Takeshi's castle style, <laughs> excuse me, um, um, arena battle. Right. Not this... I quite like the tilting yeah. uh, fighting thing. It, it's very apparent that they are rubber, the spikes, mm. though, aren't yeah. they? Whenever an, a- an actor is near one. Yeah. But it must be dodgy as well because they are, you know, they're on some sort of like, you know, ratchet system where they randomly come up and down. So they they would have had to have, you know, choreographed this very uh, carefully. Yeah, I think it it says in one of the documentaries about the choreography on there and the fact that I think that even if there were rubber, there must have been still something solid inside to drive them out. So I think they were still dangerous to fall on. Um mm. And then you do see, obviously, there was a, a lot of um, bags and stuff around the edge in case they did fall off the platform and they were falling onto just a soft surface. But, yeah, it was choreographed quite extensively by the look of it. And it is quite fun. I mean, back then yeah. I didn't like it at all because, yeah. you know, we're a year after Empire Strikes Back where you've got a city in the clouds, where you've got a battle at the end between mm. Darth Vader and Luke. And, yeah, Timothy Dalton and Sam Jones didn't cut it for me but I, no I, I as i say I, I i far more appreciate this film now than i did back then yeah there's there's a lot of character moments like you know at the beginning of the battle flash just holds his hand out and walks towards him like hey let's shake hands and be friends straight away but baron doesn't want any of that does he no um you know until sort of the end of the battle and I think Timothy Dalton as an actor in it he's he's he is taking it completely seriously yeah um, you know, I think other people are seeing the, the the fun that they're having, but you know, it's almost like he's like an Errol Flynn type. Oh, that's that's who he's channeling. Yeah, yeah, he yeah, is yeah. Totally I mean, channeling it's, it's, Errol. It's his it's his <laughs> character from the Rocketeer, but like in Flash Gordon, isn't it? You know yes, what I mean? yeah. 
And the costumes look, do look magnificent, you know. That's the yeah. beauty of, you know, watching it on Blu-ray. You know, it's like, they are gorgeous. His green outfit is fabulous. It really is. Yeah, um, I mean, pe- people may criticise some of this stuff on its release, but again, if you see the various documentaries and you see some of the images, you think, the workmanship that went into yeah, these costumes... that's the word. It's the workmanship, is It's crazy. It's not just... It's not cheap and it's not nasty. Nope. It's nope. it's sort of sumptuous in, in lots of ways, um, mm. you know, in terms of the the way that the material's been used and the jewels that have been added, and um, you know, the leather work, I suppose, on like you know the outfits. It's just it is immense, yeah, in lots yeah. of ways, and it's easy to sort of mock it, but then you think, well, you know, there's a loads. I mean, I'm, I know you're going to do a future talk about the costumes. Mm. Um, you know, and I think there's there's lots to say about them. Yes, yeah, absolutely. All right, well, their their fight is is it's over, and that's when War Rocket Ajax arrives. What do you think of War Rocket Ajax? Ajax as a design. It's not War Rocket Ajax that shows up to blow up the city. It's it's uh, which, it's which a... one turns up to blow up the city it's, oh it's, no ajax is later isn't it yeah, oh, yeah, it's, yeah I do it's, apologize. it's more like i don't know we only really kind of see it in one one or two shots but it's 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 like i don't know if it's ming's personal cruiser this one uh but we we do sort of only see it it's almost like it could even be a mat i don't know it's it's a weird shot we see of it firing the lasers down mm. um yeah warwick at ajax shows up obviously later on but it's similar in design but like you said, the, the, it's the same as the one with the buggy eyes. I mean, I love that ship. I absolutely think it's brilliant. But we see one shot of it. Yeah, uh, it, it's kind of it's like buzzing like a hornet, isn't it? You know. Yeah, I've got great photos of it, but you don't see it to that degree in the film. No, it's it's really bizarre um, uh, that that you know some of this stuff was like made and then just seen literally one shot. It's it's like when when Ming arrives at Cloud City, we see him in one vehicle, and then when Clytus arrives as well, we see him in another vehicle. Yes. They're not even the same vehicles that they both show up in. So there's two other models there, which I think are in one shot each. Yes, they are. Uh, yeah. and, and and that's kind of it, you know. And um, you think they just you know have like a standard transport ship, but no, they've actually built separate ships for Ming and for Clytus. Yes. Well, when Clytus arrives, you know, we also, I mean, that's where he's going to meet his doom, isn't he? Yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, that's where he's going to die. Where we get this thing where he's impaled on the spikes and for some reason his eyes bulge out. Yeah, he, 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 I don't know, it's just, it was a bit gruesome, that really. I don't know what the thought process behind it was. It reminds me always of, you know, the end of the first Mad Max film, you know, um, yeah. you know where the toe cutter dies and the eyes it, bulge. It's like, like a that. cross between... That and Wizard of Oz, isn't it? It's like like the witch melting, mm. you know. And and this the same as what happens later on with Carla. She she has a similar fate where she kind of seems to just dissolve into a puddle. It is all very weird. All this. I mean, you 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 know, our um um, uh, what's his name, John Hollis. Um, yeah. You know, when his eyes, you know, his mask is taken off, and you've got all this like wiring, wiring, yeah, like he's yeah. A, like he's an android or something, but yeah. he's not. He's not like he's painted silver. He's obviously like a human, um, but with cybernetic with eyes or something. Yes, yeah, yeah. There, there's loads of weird and wacky stuff in there, isn't there? 
Yeah, and it's all good fun. Now I, I watch yeah. it and it's like, you know, I, I'm, I'm going with this because you have the big battle at the end, don't you, where, you know, they're coming through and, you know, the ship comes through the clouds and, yeah. you know, the Hawkmen and Brian Blessed is like, you know, yeah. <laughs> really giving it his all while he's hanging on, on his wires, you know. The, the destruction of sort of the, the, the sky city, the cloud city, I mean, there's some shots of the miniature blowing up which, you know, leave a bit to be desired and especially... The fact that you've got these kind of sparks going off against like a blue screen, which don't really work well, but and then Flash kind of falls down that kind of middle of the shaft where the spike pit was, and yeah. ends up a little bit like Luke, doesn't he? Kind of falls down, but ends up going off down like a little side tunnel, like he does in Empire when he yeah, falls convenient. down. Yeah, and uh, suddenly he's, he, there's there's just a random rocket bike stored yes. in there. He can take you know almost like it's an emergency thing. Uh, yeah, it's, it's it's all a bit convenient, but it's great fun. It is great fun. I mean, this whole battle coming up, and yeah, there are limitations. You can see, yeah, you don't believe for one minute any of those Hawkmen are flying, you know, yeah. whether it's in long shot with all the little models with their little wings mm. going or the actors with their big wings moving very, very slowly. But it's all good fun. You know, they arrive on the wings of the ship and they, you know, try to board it and everything. Yeah. As we've talked about before with many of these other movies, there's always shots that really stick out. And, you know, when we were doing Alien, I said it's the shot of Nostromo detaching from the mm. refinery and where the engines light up and that, you know, I love that shot. For me, in this movie, it's the one of War Rocket Ajax actually coming through the clouds. Yes, yeah. I love that shot. It's Because um, it's, like, it's a real miniature in the real clouds. Mm. It's not like keyed in or anything. It's not superimposed. And there's just something about that shot of it coming through the clouds that, you know... I don't know. I just I could watch that all day long. Almost. Yeah, no, no, no. That is a good shot. Yeah, That's it is a, really a great shot. shot. It, yeah, it's it's... There's just something about certain shots in movies which just really stick with you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's definitely one of them for me. Yeah. But I also like the, the the whole the whole sequence, the the, the music, the build up, the whole the whole thing about you know they're trying to flush you out, flash, and then they're coming through, um, and then obviously the the famous Prime Blessed line of dive, you know that that is all. <laughs> and Queen's music and everything is just it's a great sequence. Mm. And I said the only thing that lets it down, unfortunately, is the optical effects, yes. the actual flying yeah. and. And what tends to happen, especially in the, the sequence when he says they're coming through and he flashes on the bike, you've got uh, Vulton behind him and all the Hawkmen. It seems like all of them Hawkmen were shot in groups of, say, five or six, mm. and each one is slightly differently composited. So some of them are translucent, and some of them are slightly blacker, and some of them are slightly greyer. It's almost like someone could, could do with going back to getting all the original elements and recomping, you know, getting it back to how it should be. Yeah. It would be nice. Um, yeah, I mean, when the DVD came out, I thought that's some of the stuff that they might possibly do, um, you know. But I suppose it just it, it's where all the original elements are in storage, where's all the original blue screen elements. But, yeah. um, you know, I'm sure somebody, uh, given the time, could even take the actual print that's available and, you know, re regrade them somehow. Well, you see uh, on YouTube where people have taken, you know, um, films and in their own homes yeah. have rejigged and done things. I'm sure there, there there would be a way of doing it. And as yeah. you say, it would have been nice if they did it when it came out on DVD. It would have been nice if it, they did it when it came out on Blu-ray. It would have been nice if they had done it for the mm. recent 4K release. But no, no, we're just left with what we had. Well, I think the problem is, is I think with 
with Lucas, uh, with when he did Star Wars, I think all of those uh, roles of film with all of the different TIE fighters, X-Fighters, explosions, lasers, were all sort of archived and stored sensibly. Mm. But as we've said before, there's certainly seen some Flash Gordon that seem to have been deleted and probably never see the light of day. They'll be there somewhere in an archive or in a in a garage or up on a shelf in a studio. Yeah. Uh, the, the the original roles of some of these uh, films, but uh, you know, it would take a lot of effort on someone's part, and mm. the studio would have to pay for that to to physically yeah, true, happen. True. Um, and is it is it going to ever happen? No, but the fans would do it for free. It would be nice, wouldn't it? Yeah. And again, who knows? We might get more information in this um, book that's out next month. You never know. Yeah, because on the DVD, the documentary does mention some deleted sequences. And apparently, you know, towards the end of the movie, Dale Arden turned into some kind of spider creature. Mm. Uh, and they said there was photographs supposedly of her in the makeup. But then the documentary fails to actually show you the photographs. Yeah, yeah I've read that, but I've never seen one photo. Yeah, and, and you're, you're thinking, well... Whoever's done the documentary, I don't know whether it was Lisa Downs um, who did Life After Flash, who's done some of this supplemental material, it's part of her stuff, but you're thinking, well, if if someone's seen them, where are the photographs? Like, why haven't we got some pictures of them, you know? Well, especially, you know, you say Life After Flash, which is a fabulous documentary. Yeah, um, it is. Very entertaining, you know, and, and we recommend anyone go see it. Is it Netflix or Amazon Prime? It's Netflix, it's, uh, it? it's I think it's on Amazon Prime, is it Amazon Prime? Yeah. Thoroughly enjoyable. You know, it's good to see everybody taking part. You know, nobody, um, um, you know, seems to dismiss it. And um, yeah, that would have been the place to put it in. I would have thought. Yeah, it's same as you know. There's obviously stills of the uh, the graveyards, but whether there's any footage of it, who knows? But uh, there's, mm. there's obviously I've seen several stills of the setup. So it, you know. Somebody must have more photographs of, of some actual footage of it. Mm. Um, but it, it's just finding where where they're stored because, you know, studios back then just didn't seem to give a hoot. Yeah, yeah. All right, well, we're near the end of the film because, yeah. you know, the ship crashes. And like, um, like Martin says, you know, when Ming gets impaled by the nose yeah, spike. Yeah, that's bizarre. Yes, at the very end of the nose spike, not the end that Max is on, but uh, the other end, yeah. that is the nose cone of the miniature that he and Bill built of Zarkov's spaceship. And once you see that, you can't unsee it, can you? But is is that... Does Martin mean that's just from the same mold, or the physically destroyed his model to oh, actually... I can't go- believe it. I mean, I mean, you know, you know, you either have the miniatures done before a film or yeah. after a film, or concurrent with a film. And I don't know, maybe, maybe they did the miniature work first, and you had this model left over, and we need something to, you know, just detail up this spike. That old, yeah. Um, See, I wasn't, I wasn't sure on. whether Martin or whoever had sculpted the bulk of that had maybe sculpted it, uh, you know, out with gelatin or whatever Martin normally would use. But then they made like a mold and then they did a fiberglass. So there was a spare kind of fiberglass version. Maybe he's kicking around and someone thought, we'll have that. It seems a bit drastic to actually think, oh, there's a finished model here. Let's, you know, chop mm-hmm. it up and use it on the front of there. Yeah, but maybe um, we're looking at it the wrong way round. Maybe they filmed this bit first and Martin or Bill saw that on the end of the spike yeah, and said, oh, that would be a good for Zarkov, the front of Zarkov. You know what yeah. Martin and Bill were like for looking for shapes 
and reincorporate them and turn them into something else. It could be that that... Yeah, maybe in the skip, yeah, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and they... <laughs> I've got yeah. a mental image of them two going through the skip now. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it might have been that. You never know. But, you know, they never spotted that until Martin had mentioned it. And then I've, never, I've never seen it. It's like, what are you talking about? And I, I, I went and looked at it. It's like, bloody hell, he's right. Yeah, yeah there's a, a, a website that I go on, which is kind of uh, where the guy does the... The, the screen caps from movies and he's got the Flash Gordon one so you can literally go through the whole movie just looking at the screen caps and so I went straight to that last page and seen that I thought yeah there it is yeah, you know? there it is yeah just yeah. as Martin mentions you know, absolutely bizarre. yeah alright well behind the scenes you know an awful lot of this Andrew because mm. you know you know a lot of stuff but yeah I mean this film owes its origins basically to George Lucas and yeah. George yeah. Lucas's failed attempt to make Flash Gordon. He, yeah. like us, he grew up on the serials. He loved the Flash Gordon serials. He wanted to make one. He, he approached with um, a view of making it, was told to clear off because they were going to do their own version with uh, Fellini directing. Yeah. And that's why he went off to do Star Wars. Star Wars was such a massive hit. That's mm -hmm. when they went, all right, we're going to make a Flash Gordon to cash in on Star Wars. So yeah. if he had never approached them and been rejected by them, they yeah. would never have made a Flash Gordon. Yeah, we would never have got Star Wars as well, obviously, if they'd let him make Flash. But it makes you wonder what his version of Flash would have been like. It's got to be sort of similar to some of the elements we saw in, you know, Star Wars. I mean, we yeah. were saying that last week. You know, you can see, when you know that, you can see elements of Flash Gordon in Star Wars. For instance, you know, the Emperor... Is very mm. Ming-like, isn't he, you know? Yeah, but it, it does make you wonder whether the spaceship combat would have been the same, you know, uh, because obviously Flash Gordon, we, we're more used to rocket ships. Yeah. Uh, where Star Wars, we have sort of quite realistic ships, I suppose, like X-Wings and things. Well, so. you know, the rocket ships we see in this version of Flash Gordon, they owe an awful lot to the serials in that yeah. they... They fly horizontally, left to right. There's yeah. not much in the way of swooping around like you saw in Star Wars, is there? Mm. I mean, for me as well, the miniature work um, in Flash Gordon, I, I like Zarkov's ship, I like War Rocket Ajax, I like the one with the bug eyes, um, and the other one that destroys the um, Cloud City thing. But mm -hmm. it's the, the one that they go to Arboria in, I think, is pretty lousy in terms of its design. Yeah. Uh, and I think there's another couple of other, say, the landers that you see briefly. And it's almost like the smaller ships are the worst ones, but the big ships are the good ones. Um, yeah, they're, they're not very memorable, those small ships. I say that, that little red one is a very unusual design. Mm. It is, it, that is really Barbarella, remind, actually. That looks like it could be from Barbarella. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Yeah. Because it's kind of like this little red pod with these little kind of bat wings, isn't it, almost? Yes, yeah. 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 So, yeah, I mean, George Lucas was shown the door because Fellini was going to do a version, but yeah. he dropped out. Um, and that's when Nicholas Rogue stepped in. Nicholas Rogue was going to yeah, do it. That's um, right. Yeah. And uh, aided by his friend Michael Allen. Um, yeah. And that's, a all, that's an interesting tale, isn't it? About, you know, his version of it as well. And well, any, anybody who hasn't got the, the Blu ray wants, um, you know. If you want the information, it is there about what his version is going to be about. It It is very odd to try and imagine it. I mean, according to Michael Allen, you know, 
he Nicholas Rogue loved the idea that you know the the speech bubbles in the comic strip were for children, mm. but the imagery was for adults because mm. there's an awful lot of tying up and whipping and stuff like yeah. that if you look at the originals. Um, and he says that you know Nicholas's version was going to be a comic book story, but for adults. Ming was a god, Flash and Dale were Adam and Eve, and Ming was an evil deity chasing them across the universe. Yeah, it was almost know? like he was purging the universe, wasn't he, of, like, you know, races he didn't like as well. You know, it was it was a very weird. Um, but, yeah, it's, it, it's the fact that it obviously went into sort of pre-production as well. You know, the, the dude talk on the documentary to John Richardson and um, I think there's a, there's a guy who was a costume designer who they talked to. So some of the costumes and stuff were getting designed and... Sets were getting designed and things, and then they pulled the plug on it, didn't they? Well, they pulled the plug on it because as they designed it, yeah, it was all through the winter and spring of 78 they did this. Um, the budget grew and grew and grew as the production mm. designs grew and grew. And what started off as quite a small project for Fellini was, was going into this massive, you know, 25 to $30 million project. Um, yeah. They were going to film in Italy, um, but that was, uh, you know, dismissed because the the sound stages there had fallen into uh, disrepair. Yeah. Um, plus, you know, Dino's uh, daughter Raffaella was the subject of mafia kidnapping threats, right. so that kind of put them off going there. Uh, the Italian labor unions refused to work weekends, you know. So, <laughs> so um, Dino, of course decides, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to film it in England. I'm going to buy Pinewood Studios, and then I can film it there. But that fell through. So he ended up renting 12 sound stages at Shepparton. It sounds like he used the um, place where they shot the Yavin hangar stuff as well. For, yes. Um, the uh, old aircraft hangar. Uh, yes. They mentioned yeah. that in the documentary. Um, I can't remember the name of it now. Is it Caddington, Sh- Caddington Shed? It's something like that, yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it doesn't mention it by name, but it does mention... Uh, I'll show you a photograph, and I'm, I'm pretty sure that's the same one they used in Rogue One as well, which is a huge, obviously... I think, wasn't it, like, originally built for, like, building airships or something? That's right, yeah, yeah. That's exactly yeah. what it was, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it's, a, it's a big sign. The funny thing I always find about documentaries about Laurentis, it doesn't matter, like, who's talking about him, they will always try and do an impression of what he sounds like. Mm. Uh, whether it's Sam Raimi on the Evil Dead commentary or whether it's, like, you know, the Flash Gordon. If somebody's talking and they, they say about, like, Dino said this, they will do that kind of voice of his. And I always It's find funny you should say that because a couple of days ago I listened to an interview with Mike Hodges with uh, Mark Mode. Yeah. And yep, he went into this very extravagant, over-the-top Italian accent. Yeah, yeah. I was. I think it. I think it's on uh, the Evil Dead Two um, when uh, when Johnny Rush used to do the incredibly strange picture show. They were talking to um, them on the the set of Evil Dead Two, and I think it's Bruce Campbell, and um, he says, you know, Dino was producing it. He goes, "How much you want for this picture?" You know, <laughs> and there's that type of everybody does it. You know, uh, I always find it amusing. You think, oh, they're going to do the voice. You know, someone's going to try and do. They are going to do it every an impersonation. Because I think he had such a flamboyant nature, and that. And I know that David Lynch says in an interview about you know when uh, people talk about the budget for June, he says June didn't cost half as much as Dino would like you to think it did. He said he just loved to blow his own trumpet. You know what I mean? Mm, yeah. And I'm sure it's probably the same with Flash Gordon. You know, it, it, 
he just liked to make out to people that these things cost a fortune. Um, I mean, I'm sure it was an expensive movie, but it probably wasn't what he'd like it to think it cost. Uh, because I think he was a very scrupulous filmmaker as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, now you you say about you know his accent and that, and mm-hmm. uh, yeah, um, um, language is going to create a bit of a problem because Nicholas Rogue left, Mike Hodges yeah. came in, mm-hmm. and um, you know took over the project, and, and and Dino had already brought in Daniello Donati. That's right. Uh, yeah. Okay. He had already come up with all this, you know, this grand vision for what the film was going to be. Um, one of which was what you were saying about there was going to be a three-lane freeway passing yeah. through the forests of Abaria. Mm. Yeah. And I've got a quote here from Mike Hod- Hodges. He says, I tentatively asked how we could possibly realize this. We'll get McAlpine to build it, says Dino. When yeah. Hodges pointed to the cars speeding along and inquired who would be building those, Dino had informed him that he had a team from Fiat working yeah. on it <laughs> so fiat are creating brand new cars to work on this freeway that's going to go through this forest yeah yeah like, so how, how big is the set going to be <laughs> i know I'm, i mean that's in that interview with um with mark mode he says you know if i build it this size how far back has the camera got to be to get all this in the studio yeah. the the sound stage isn't big enough you know yeah And I've got a quote from um, Mike again. He says, so I had a producer who spoke mangled English and a production (laughs) designer who spoke none at all. Both, like Ming, seemed to have arrived from another galaxy. Once I realized the film was in many ways out of my control, I relaxed and made it up as I went along. I loved it. Yeah. Mm. (laughs) Yeah. Now, also, Dino, at that same time, is looking around for who's going to be in the cast of the film. And uh, Kurt Russell was approached um, and rejected it. And thank God for that, because he he rejected it and he went on to do Escape from New York instead. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. Arnold Schwarzenegger was uh, considered. I can't see Arnold as Flash, can you? No, definitely not, no. It needs to be... I mean... Sam Jones was almost perfect in a way. Mm. You know, even though his career never went probably where it should have done, and the documentary explains, you know, what went on with that. Um, yeah, you know, he, he was he was sort of spot on. Yeah, I mean, Ian last week, he said, you know, Flash, when you first see him, when Buster Crab plays him, he's kind of dumb and yeah. ignorant about how things, but he's a very honourable person. Yeah. And Sam Jones is very much the same, isn't he? Yeah, that's what I said about, you know, he, he, he goes to hold his hand out to Baron. Like, you know, he, he doesn't want to fight Baron. He's not like a, like a you know, looking for trouble. He, he wants to get everybody to get along. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it, you know, it's, I think he, he was good in that role. And it'll be a role, obviously, he's always remembered for. Um, yes, yeah. But it was quite interesting because I think um, I mentioned to uh, Lisa Downs um, about, um, you know, the Peter Marinka story, which I think I'd talked about before when we were talking about Starfleet, about this is the guy from, uh, he's a, you know, Canadian-born but British actor who did the voices Mm -hmm. on Starfleet. And, you know, I did mention it to her and I think she was going to try and kind of find out for sure whether, you know, because I think he's still around. 
whether it was definitely him who did the voice. You know, I don't think anyone's ever actually approached him and asked for sure uh, whether he sort of did the redub. But you know, certainly we've we've heard this before as well that the uh, the sequences uh, with the tree stump monster and stuff apparently that is actually Sam's own voice. Right. In, the, in those sequences, and I can't remember what the reason for that was. It was something just with the way the sound was recorded, and and that that they, they said, you know, that's definitely his. So the, it seems like Sam's voice is still in the movie in quite large chunks, but then there's certain relooping that needed to be done. Yeah. Uh, which right. Well, Mike Hodges in that you know interview with Mark Mode, he says the definitive answer is he had a manager sam jones had a manager that was demanding more and more money okay yeah. and he listened to the manager and he walked away pretty much near the end of you know principal photography he walked away didn't want anything more to do with it unless you paid me more they said no they had no choice but to go back and adr a lot of the yeah. lines okay yeah i think Which, the, i think they went on for christmas didn't they? but then i think when they came back after christmas wingard and people like that they were wonder where sam was yes um and they said he's been like kind of let go we don't we not we don't need him anymore um, and i think they were a bit shocked i think they they wanted him back yeah uh, and i think they tried to you know stand up for him and get Laurentis to get him back but you know Laurentis and dug his heels in yeah and there you go, you've got two stubborn people, neither of yeah. them give way, and it has been attributed to the failure in America, not in England. I mean, it was a sizable hit over here, wasn't it? it yeah, it was, it was a hit in Europe generally, I think. You know, but not um, America, and, and, and they put it down to the fact that, you know, America is the land of the uh, chat show circuit, yeah, isn't it? Yeah. And if you want to promote a film, you get your stars on the latest, you know, whatever, you know, chat show host. To promote yeah. it, and Sam Jones said no, and yeah. uh, and 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 that they they they've laid the blame, um, you, you know, fairly at the uh, yeah. foot of him. And then there was a kind of some of the publicity material as well that said, you know, a lot of cinemas had like bigger pictures of Ming than they did of Flash. Mm. Uh, See, that's not going to help either, is no. it? You know, I, I mean, can't remember. Whether, I can't remember this on the documentary as well. Just going back to the Arboria stuff, it might have been Gil Taylor who mentioned this, but um, I think originally they wanted the trees in Arboria to be printed it's like purple or pink as well, and I think they even started painting them. Mm. And I think he said they look absolutely dreadful. He said, you know, he said I'm not we're not using them. Um, you know, that the, he just said it looked horrendous, so they actually then went and painted them back as normal coloured trees. Yeah, uh, but I think it was Donati who wanted them this vivid, you know. Kind of almost, I suppose it reminds me of like the plants on uh, the at the Earth's core, you know. Yes. Uh, that like strange hue light. Um, so yeah, I think he, he, Gil Taylor said no way. But it's odd, isn't it? Again, like Gil Taylor, just two or three years earlier, there he is doing Star Wars. Now he's doing Flash Gordon. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, what, what what would you have thought if the you know if the trees had been all that color, if it had been that psychedelic? Do you think? I don't it think it probably would have bothered me. You, know, you probably would have just got used to it, but um, you know, because it's part of the, the the world that you're sort of looking in, isn't it? Mm. Um, yeah. You know, there's lots of weird creatures in this movie in terms of like the thing that sort of tr tries to sort of grab Flash and pull him into the ground, like a weird kind of crab. And, yes. Uh, you know, they, they really remind me again about the Earth's core. It reminds me of the thing in that cave we yeah. talked about. Yeah. You know, so there's lots of these weird monsters. I'm not too sure who made half of these things. Uh, they just, you know, I don't know whether it was like people like Nick Malians, you know, those type of people. Certainly I wouldn't British be surprised. Crew. 
Yes, oh, yeah, absolutely. Nick, Nick Merley or, um, you know, like Lyle Conway or any of those people probably yeah. had a hand in it. It might um, have been a leftover from at the Earth's core. You never know. Redressed. Yeah, I'll tell you another thing I love about Flash Gordon is every single gun has a different sort of laser beam. Some are zigzags, mm. some are spirals, yeah. Yeah. some are like, you know... Different uh, sound effects as well. Yeah, um, and I really like that. It gives them all like a unique quality. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, I say some of them when you actually look at them slow motion or in like single frames, some of them are literally there's like it's it's like a little yellow zigzag like up and down like yes. a, like 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 a beam, but it's it's zigzagged and yeah, some like a curve. comic book. Oh yeah, uh, and I absolutely love them for that. I think yes. they're, they're, they're great. You know, yeah, yeah. Uh, where, where the Star Wars guns were pretty much just all the same beam, they, these aren't. They've all got their own unique identity. Yeah, and it adds to the uh, quirkiness of it, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah there's, some, there's some really good stuff like that. Yeah, I've got a, I've got a nice quote from Brian Blessed here about you know him getting the role of Voltan. He says. Uh, I heard that they were doing Flash Gordon. They'd virtually cast it, but I think they hadn't cast Voltan. Yeah. I was going to go along and meet Mike Hodges, and there was Dino. I said, I'm bloody made for this. I saw it as a child. If you don't give it to me, I'm going to bloody kill you. Well, <laughs> I can hear him saying it. I'm not going to try an impersonation, but I can hear yeah. him saying it. Well, about four weeks later, he called me in again, and we went to see him and Mike. And there were pictures on the wall from the comic books, and they looked exactly like me. I said, look, Dino, it's bloody me. He said, <laughs> no, no, is that the comic strip? Anyway, he left me with Mike, and he said, they're offering it to you, you know. It was £30,000, which right. was a bloody fortune then. Yeah. It's a bloody fortune now. If somebody wants me to wear some plastic wings <laughs> and hang me up in a nappy, yeah. you know, um, I'll, I'll do that for thirty grand. Yeah. Hmm. Um, and also, it's Dino. We've got to thank for the Queen soundtrack. Yeah. Um, he wanted Queen, um, but Mike Hodges wanted Pink Floyd. Um, mm. And, and again, said, an, an, another holdover from the Jodorowsky June. Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, You're absolutely it, it, right. There's, there's lots of these weird sort of connections with these movies. Yeah. Apparently, it was quite embarrassing because when uh, Queen, I mean Ma Martin, said, you know, that they came to the studios. But when they went on to the uh, soundstage where they were filming, they were actually playing Dark Side of the Moon as mm. a, you know, as a temp track, yeah, which yeah. Mike Hodges thought was a bit embarrassing, you know. Mm. Um, I, I still think uh, not enough's made of Howard Blake's music. Howard Blake's score, when well, you hear it's it. It's really good. Um, yeah, I, I've got the album, um, and it's a great album. You know, his... his a lot of his incidental music I attributed originally to Queen, but it's not. I think the works he worked with Queen on some of the yes, tracks. Yes, he did. Yes, um, you know, like the uh, the the Ming's arrival theme. Um, I think it was a combination between both of them. Uh, but there's there's lots of just incidental music by Howard Blake, which I absolutely love, and it, you know, it's as memorable as Queen in a lot of respects. Um, yeah, but yeah. Un rather unfairly, they get all the uh, mm, um, they do, you know, yeah. They get all the glory and the attention, don't they? Yeah, it's a bit of a shame, really. I think the the other thing, what I was saying about the optical effects, and this is, I don't know whether this is coincidental, but the optical effects for this and for David Lynch's Dune were both done by Frank Van Der Veer, mm -hmm. and both of the films have got quite poor sort of optical effects for me, mm. um, you know, in terms of like composite work, um, you know, just blue screenshots. Um, and I don't know whether that was just Van Der Veer with him being a veteran and he just didn't have the the know-how about doing modern 
stuff or what, but um, you know, had like Trumbull or ILM done this, it probably would have been leagues ahead. I think so. I think yeah. Van der Vee was getting to like you know, I think he was quite old at this point. You know, I think he'd been doing effects for a lot of years. He was certainly probably somebody who was maybe in his sixties, his sixties or seventies. Mm. But like the guys who were doing the stuff at ILM, who were probably more like in the thirties. Yes, they were. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there was uh, there's a distinct like you know quality problem with the optical effects. Mm, uh, yeah, yeah, and I say that that can sometimes have the impact. Then, obviously, on the the work that people are doing, whether it's like the the, the flying rigs or whether it's like people like Martin and Bill's miniatures. Unfortunately, because it can sort of like reduce the quality of them, and that's through no fault of their own. And again, we've talked about this before with like shows like Blake Seven. Now, sometimes the miniatures are actually really, really nice to see in reality, but then when you see the Scorpio in Blake Seven in season four, it's so poorly comped that it. Mm. it it destroys the work of the miniature. I mean, um, he didn't say it, but do you think that might be a part of why Martin doesn't like the film? I mean, if you go to all that graft, you know, churning out, you know, mm. you, you know, greenhouses made out of melted down sweets, you know, yeah. landers that are made out of spa uh, spacecraft that you've made in less than 24 hours. And when you see it up there on screen, Especially mm -hmm. when you're used to, like he said, with Alien and Space 1999, you know, they were photographed well and they were yeah. represented well. Do you think that might be part of why he was a bit, mm, I don't know about this? Yeah, probably. I mean, you know, when, when someone like Martin's worked with the likes of Brian Johnson and people like that and they've actually done like a good job of photographing his miniatures. It's like anything, isn't it? If you were to build like a yeah. like a really nice model and then hand it off to somebody to take some nice photographs, but then the photographs come back and it makes your model look rather cheap and nasty. You're not you'd gonna be, like it. No, you're not gonna like it, are you? And I suppose that's the problem is a lot of the shots probably do reduce the quality of the the, the miniature work. Yeah. Uh, plus plus I, I suppose again in a lot of these productions there's a lot of stuff made. Um, that's just never seen a light of the day again, you know, and that can't be good, even though you got paid to build a graveyard of spaceships, um, or you got See, that build, doesn't you know, help either, does um, it? You know, a, go to a, a, green, a greenhouse that's going to shatter, but it doesn't quite. You don't film it right, yeah. And I know, you know, from I, I know Martin's a perfectionist because you know I, I I used to you know produce that magazine about his work, yeah, and he, yeah. he he is very much a perfectionist, mm -hmm. and you know, and and quite rightly so, he wants to see his work you know, that he's produced, seen in the best light as possible. So yeah. I wouldn't be at all surprised. I thought it was interesting as well, Martin mentioned Christine Orvers, and she was another one that went mm. on to work on June. Yes. Um, she, yeah. she, she was a miniature builder on June. So, you know, she's somebody I don't really know much about her career, but um, she seemed to be a model maker stroke sculptor who worked on, I think she possibly worked on Dark Crystal as well as a sculptor. Um, but yeah, she, she seems, I've never, I don't think, I've really sort of had a proper look at the resume for her, but she was one of the few sort of um, you know female model makers that seemed to be in the business. Well, I know she did June, and I know she did Aliens, but it's never very specific about just what, what, what particular did, yeah. thing she did. You know, yeah, there was you know, I, I know uh, there was a couple of uh, mat artists working at ILM at the time. Who uh, there was Carolyn Green and Michelle Moen. And they were well-established map painters, and they did some amazing work on Indiana Jones and stuff and Star right. Trek. They're like quality, but in terms of yeah, model makers, um, you know, she's one of the few uh, female model makers that I've sort of you know remember reading about Christine mm. Overs or Chrissy Overs as the caller. 
Yeah, and um, it's nice for Martin to give her a shout out as well, isn't it? Yeah, because yeah. I say, you know, there was obviously more than Martin and Bill working on the miniatures, but, um, you know, they, they were the supervising model makers. Yes. And yeah. as he says, I think on that interview, doesn't he? He says, like, kind of like when the guy said, Who are you to? He said, Well, we're the supervising model makers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Almost like no one knew. Yeah. All right. Well, the only other little snippets of behind the scenes I've got, I mean, can you imagine this, right? When when Nicholas Rogue was going to direct it, um, mm. Princess Aura was going to be played by Debbie Harry. What do you yeah. think about that idea? That sounds like it probably would have been okay to me. Um, I said to Ian, Ornella Muti is so ingrained in my mind as her. When you watch the serial, it's like, what, that's her, is it? She is so deliciously, you know... Yeah. Sly and you know, whatever, you know. Um, yeah, it's hard to imagine anyone else in that role. But again, she's just like Sam J. J. Jones is known for Flash, or Nella Muti is known for, you know, that aura. Yeah. And, and I know, obviously, she's done a lot more movies than Flash Gordon in her own country. Um, and, you know, because I follow her on Instagram and stuff like that. But it's if I ever put a picture of her on my Instagram account as not aura, people will still say the ballworms line. <laughs> you, can, you can almost guarantee it. You know, it's almost like who's going to say it first. And um, David Williams, who's like a huge fan of Flash Gordon, who follows my Instagram account, I sometimes talk to him about it on the messenger and stuff. And uh, when the figures came out recently, someone's and he said, "Oh, he said, oh, they're really, really good, aren't they?" He said, but is there a Princess Aura coming out? <laughs> so straight away, you know, he was, he was more interested in the fact that is there an Aura uh, rather than a Clytus and stuff. She but, went know, I, in, didn't she? She really yeah. went in. Oh, yes. But, but I, I mentioned to him about the John Walsh book, which I think he, he, like, he literally ordered there and then while I was still messaging him and the, <laughs> and the, 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 the Blu-ray release, you know, with all of the supplemental material. So that, there's, there's a sale, two, two sales, uh, you know, because of me. We're going to have to send this link to him so he knows, you know. <laughs> yeah, he, he, he's uh, he's certainly been with fancy dresses, uh, David Williams dresses me. I've seen the pictures of him, so he is a big fan of it. Yeah, he, uh, he, like, he does like it. <laughs> Excellent. I've, I've got one more little uh, snippet for you. According to Peter Wingard, you know, the oh, brilliant right, yeah. winter Pete, Peter yeah. Wingard, um, the hand that pick, picks up Ming's ring at the end That's of the right, film yeah. is Clytus. I can't yeah, now, see how Clytus survived that, can you? No, but I've, I've heard this story about the sequel, and I can't remember again where I've heard it or read it, that so apparently what was going to happen in the sequel was Clytus was going to almost semi-transform back into Ming. It's right. almost like Clytus was like a clone of Ming. So if anything ever happened to, to Ming, then Clytus would eventually kind of become Ming. Well, they are very similar, aren't they? Yeah, you know? it, it, you know, they, they are, isn't it? It's um, And you could sort of see he's wearing the mask, so you can't see his face. So you could almost see that happening at some point in the movie that Clytus takes off the mask to reveal his Ming all along. Yes, he's but, certainly um, got that sense of cruelty as well, hasn't he? Yeah, but I also remember in Starburst, the Starlog, a thing about Flash Gordon 2, and it said Flash Gordon 2 was going to be in production and Sybil Danning was going to be in it. What, uh, as Ming? Not as Ming, no. <laughs> but, you know, again, you think, yeah, yeah, Flash Gordon 2 with Sybil Dunning, that would have been cool. Mm. You know, because uh, I suppose at this this point was what, 
like 1980. So I suppose like come 1981 when Battle Beyond the Stars was getting released, maybe yeah. Flash Gordon 2 was still potentially, uh, you know, a go project. But you could have had Caroline Monroe come in there as well. Oh, yeah, of course you, know? you could. Oh, it would have been yeah. brilliant. But yeah, it's an unusual, it's, it's a very mixed cast, isn't it? You've got obviously Americans in there, you've got like Italians in there, you've got sort of British actors in there. Um, you know, it's a real mixed bag in terms of its crew, in terms of its cast. Um, you know, it, it it has that say the European sensibility, but then obviously mm. it's based on the comic book as well, which was an American comic book. Yep. Uh, you know, Flash being an American quarterback in this, as opposed to a, was he a polo player? Polo in the original? player, yes, yeah, 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 yeah. So I think that's a good phrase, mixed bag. I think that yeah. that really sums up the film, doesn't it? I think the one thing as well that I did. Like at the end of the the documentary, um, the life after Flash was the fact that Sam did sort of seem like in before Laurentis passed away that they had made peace with yes, each other. Yeah, uh, which I was quite pleased to hear that you know like it was water under the bridge and there was a bit of an apology on both parts for mm. the behaviour. Um, you know there was no animosity at the ends, and you know now Sam obviously he's still doing conventions and yes. promoting Flash as is people like Peter Duncan and yes yeah and uh, did we mention that Peter Sloan's the remnants of the uh, yes he does the, doesn't he yeah, yeah the there, there was a photo recently yeah. yeah yeah very very tight remnants mind you well that's latex for you isn't it yeah 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 but uh, yeah it's it's um, you know it's certainly movie I always. Remember, I think it's in one of the Industrial Light Magic books. It shows you one of the work, work, um, workhouses there, you know, for uh, the model shop. And they've got a Flash Gordon poster up on the wall. This is around about the time of maybe it's like Star Trek uh, right. 3 or Star Trek 4. And you think, yeah, great. You know, they've got a Flash Gordon poster. They're yep. obviously fans, you know. Otherwise, wouldn't have a poster up on the wall. Yeah. Uh, I wouldn't yeah. be at all surprised if Netflix or whoever, you know, picks up the rights and we get a another version somewhere down the line do you i think i think the thing is with some of these franchises now it's like when they did the superman with brandon routh i think they went the right route to actually use the john williams music and i don't yeah. think you can do flash gordon without the flash theme i think it, it needs to be in there i think it's just it's part of flash gordon now as um, as much as we were saying last week, you know, um, the serial reuses Bride of Frankenstein, but Ian and I only hear Flash Gordon when we yeah. hear the Bride of Frankenstein music more than the Bride of Frankenstein. Yeah. It's just something about it. It goes in, doesn't it? And it stays there. Yeah. You know, you, you, you could almost just do Flash Gordon, but set in the same sort of world and the same sort of look. But, you know... Flash Gordon, that theme is just there now. It's it, yes, it's in. You know, it, as, as Martin says in his uh, interview, it's even used on know, TV yeah. commercials, toilet for, cleaners. <laughs> yeah, for flash kitchen floor or thing, or toilet cleaners. You know, it it, it does make you wonder what royalties uh, you know the rest of Queen get every time that's played. Yeah, yeah, uh, on that commercial because I'm sure they do get royalties. I'm sure um, they do. Yeah, but yeah, you know it. There has been talk, obviously. I mean, there was a dreadful nineteen late nineties or early two thousands TV version, which apparently didn't even have any spaceships, and I've never even seen it. Uh, the travel to Mongol through some kind of portal, and it just looked cheap and nasty. It looked kind of like, you know, if you imagine Babylon Five, but with like a tenth of the budget oh, uh, for, for the sets. It just, you know, I know Babylon Five is a good show. I like it, but 
it was very set bound, and this yes, looked it even was, more. Yeah. This looked even more set bound, um, and it just looked really crummy. Makes you wonder what's the point then? Yeah, you know, I, I think a lot of these things would work better probably as um, animations, uh, you know, whether it be done in the computer or even as illustrated. Yeah, because I think you know they do have that kind of inherent style and look of them mm. um, to to do that. Um, because again, if you did like a new Flash Gordon film, people would want to see a cameo from Sam Jones, even if he's just yep. playing his own dad. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And you would want somewhere a Queen reference if you're not using, you know, it yeah. all the way yeah. through. Yeah. And again, yeah. films like films like Ted have brought Flash back into the forefront. Yes, as very the much so. Yes, again, yes. you know, and it yeah. was a great, it was a great nod to the movie, and it it shows you just again in Hollywood just how many people are still fans of it. Yes, yeah. You know, yeah. like Seth MacFarlane and people. He's, he, he's done that even in, like, Family Guy. There's been Flash Gordon mm. uh, things. There was, there was one where they were talking about kind of what does God do on his day off, and he's literally on the Hawkman rocket cycle, <laughs> uh, you, know, on, on, uh, you know, and he's playing the Flash and his beard's blowing in the wind. And, uh, <laughs> you know, it's just, it's just a throwaway gag. But, yeah, he's, he's a huge fan of it all, uh, Seth MacFarlane. Mm. Yeah. All right. Well, I think we're just about done, but um, you know, hopefully before long, you and I are coming back to talk about a subject related in some way yeah. uh, to, to uh, Mr. Gordon. But uh, we'll hold off for that for now, shall we? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you then, Andrew. Sorry, are we not giving this a mark, by the oh, way? Oh, of course. Oh, blimey. I'm, 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 I'm so enjoying myself. Yes. Yeah. What's your rating out of 10 for the entirety of the effects? Be it, you know, war rocket Ajax, you know, uh, exploding greenhouses, hawkmen flapping around on wire. What's your average about all that, would you say? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give them an 8. Oh, snap. That's exactly yeah. what I've got. Yeah. If it was for just the shot of it coming through the clouds, that would be a 10, but the, just for the roll of them, it's an 8. Yes. Yeah. No, yeah. no, I, I, yeah. I think that's a very good average, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. An eight. Yeah. All right. Definitely. Yeah. All right. Okay. Well, okay. thank you. As I say, Andrew. Yes. Thanks and again. Hopefully you're going to be back soon. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Cheers. Thanks Cheers, a lot. Andrew. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye bye. Execute that trade.